0: If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4 is where we are headed. Today we'll be reading the first few verses of chapter 4. Uh, we've made it over halfway through 1 John so far this fall. Uh, as you're turning there, uh, two primary things, two primary purposes for the writing of 1 John have kind of arisen, all right? There's, there's a couple things that have become clear as we've been reading so far. Uh, first of all, one of the primary purposes of writing that we've emphasized quite a lot is that John writes to warm the hearts of his readers by the love of God and toward one another, right? He writes to warm their hearts by the love of God And toward one another. God is light. God is love. We are his beloved children. We are called to love one another and abide in him. Right? These are many of the things we've been reading about and talking about as we've gone through First John. One of the primary purposes to warm the heart by God's love and toward one another. But another purpose for writing is to warn the people of deception. Right? To warn the people of deception. In chapter 1, he warns them about those who claim to have no sin— in chapter 2, he warns the people about these antichrists that are about. In chapter 3, he warned them about children of the devil. So these are two primary purposes, to warm the heart by God's love and to warn the people of deception. And so last week at the end of chapter 3, there was a warming passage, right? Right? It was a warming passage focused on loving our neighbors as ourselves. But this week, as we turn over to chapter 4, it's another one of these warning passages. Chapter 3 ended by saying this. This is his commandment, that we should believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Just as he commanded us, all who obey his commandments abide in him, and he abides in them. By this we know that he abides in us by the spirit that he has given to us. That's where chapter 3 ended, and chapter 4 continues right where he left off. By focusing on the spirit of God. And, and this encouragement to discern the spirits that are not from God. So let's read together, First John chapter four, beginning in verse one: "Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming and now is already in the world. Little children, you are from God. And have conquered them. For the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, what they say is from the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. And whoever is not from God does not listen to us. From this we know. The spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is the word of God for the people of God. God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of your spirit. You've called us your beloved children. God, I pray that as we consider the words of your scripture together this morning, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so as we enter into this passage together, I want to begin by just addressing a couple of things. First of all, what is he talking about exactly? And second— who is he talking about in this passage? What is he talking about and who is John writing about? First, what? At the heart of this passage is the issue of discernment. Discernment. All right, uh, discernment literally means to separate or to sift through. Uh, think about the old days of the gold rush, right? And, and people would use these sieves to, to sift through dirt and gold, right? I Ever mean, you used one of those at some point, maybe? You know, shake, shake it out in the water, and the dirt goes through, but the gold stays, right? It's a sieve. And interestingly enough, discern and sieve actually have the same root, word in them. That's where this comes from. So it's this idea of of separating or sifting through something. And and the idea at the heart of discernment is this. Our experience is a mix. Our experience is a mixed bag, right? It, It is not all good. It's not all bad. It's not entirely trustworthy, everything that we see and hear. Neither is, is everything untrustworthy, right? The heart of discernment is this idea that, that our experience is a, is a mixed bag. And so it requires discernment. Not everything is from God, but some things are. So it requires discernment. It requires a sifting through, to separate out the gold from the dirt, to separate out the things of God from the things that are not of God. This is precisely what he writes in verse 1. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Right? Don't believe everything, but some of these are from God. So so it it requires testing. It requires discernment. Not everything is from God, but some things are. And this means that, on the one hand, we should not be gullible people who just believe everything. On the other hand, we should not be cynical people who doubt everything, right? Rather, we should be discerning people who consider what in this is true, what in this is not true, This is what we are called to. Now, something else important about discernment is is highlighted by one of my favorite writers from the 16th century, the writer Ignatius of Loyola. He has a lot to say about the practice of discernment, but one of the things that he emphasizes is that discernment is not just a mental exercise. It's not just something that you think about and sort through. It's practical Discernment is practical. Discernment has to do with knowing and doing the will of God. That's what discernment is all about, knowing and doing the will of God. It's not just an academic experiment in theology, but rather a practical exercise in living It reminds me of what we read last week in verse uh, chapter 3, verse 18. Let us love, not in word or speech, but in truth and action. Right? Uh, So discernment is is eminently practical. It does not just have to do with theology and getting everything figured out. It has to do with living and loving well. That's what discernment is all about. Uh, And so that's what John is writing about. As we enter chapter 4, he's writing about discernment. But who is he writing about here, right? Who who is he warning the people of? Who is he calling them to discern? Well, the rest of verse 1 answers that question. He says, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world, right? So, so John is warning the people of false prophets who have gone out, right? This means he's not warning people about non-Christians, but rather false Christians. Do you hear the difference? It's not just people who are out there somewhere. It's people who, who used to be a part of the community, but have left, have gone out. Uh, someone who—, who is claiming to be a part of this Christian family, but really they are not. This is what he's calling them to discern. Not just non-Christians, but false Christians. And, And this actually makes quite a bit of difference. Why does this distinction matter? I think it's huge because it actually transforms the way that we relate to other people. It, it it transforms the way that we relate to others. So if if John's warning is about non Christians, that means we ought to wall ourselves off from everything, right? Just cut ourselves off from the world, stay in our little holy huddle, and keep away from everything around us. It means that we should be suspicious of everyone and everything that is not explicitly Christian, uh, and and there are plenty of folks who have done this. Right? Only listen to Christian music because that secular stuff is the Antichrist. Right? You know, don't listen to rock and roll, that stuff will send you straight to the devil. Uh, Or, uh, you know, only watch Christian TV because this whole mainstream media thing is full of conspiracies, right? Stay away from it. Doubt everything. Be suspicious of everything. Everything becomes us versus them. In this way of living. It means constantly being suspicious of everything around us, which ultimately leads to a kind of constant paranoia, constant anxiety, right? And this kind of explains the the landscape of the world we're living in, right? Lots of people are suspicious of everyone else around them. Lots of people are constantly in this paranoia. Can I trust you? Can I not? I don't know, right? That's not what John is writing about here. He is not warning the people of non-Christians, of everyone else out there. However, what he is warning them about is false Christians. And that changes things. That changes things quite a bit. Because it means that instead of being suspicious of everything out there, we're instead called to be discerning of all that's going on In here. Instead of being suspicious of everything out there, we're called to be discerning about what's going on in here. Instead of being suspicious of others, which leads to paranoia, we're called to reflect on ourselves, which actually leads to repentance and transformation. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference between these two ways of living? of understanding, right? One of them is constantly defined by whatever we are against, right? Insert whatever or whoever you're suspicious of. The other one is being defined by what we are for, which is Jesus, which is Jesus. And that's precisely where John goes with the rest of the passage so what is he writing about? He's writing about discernment. Who is he writing about? He's writing about those who seek to deceive the people of God. And so in verses 2 through 3, John outlines a, a very basic rubric for discernment. It's very basic sort of test, and it goes like this. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus is the Christ has come in the flesh. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Now, before we dig into the details of what all this means, I want to highlight something, and that is the word confess the word confess, right? He says this a few times, a couple times in these two verses. And you might remember that confession comes up earlier in First John. You know, several weeks ago, we were looking at this passage from the beginning of First John. Back in chapter 1, he writes about the importance of confessing our sins. He says this, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? And, and, and this is one of those calls to the gospel, is to confess our sins, to admit that, hey, I, I don't have it all together, to confess that, that we actually need God, we need grace, To confess our sins. But usually, that's all that we mean when we talk about confession. That's usually what we think of when we think of confession. But here, in chapter 4, John introduces another kind of confession. Not just confessing our sins, but confessing Jesus. Confessing Jesus, and this is so important because this points to the fullness of the gospel. Too often, we stop at confessing our sins, which leads us to think that the gospel is all about not sinning. The gospel is just about right and wrong, do's and don'ts, so on and so forth. But confessing our sin is always meant to lead us to confessing Jesus. Confessing our sin is always meant to lead us to confessing Jesus. The gospel is not primarily about not sinning. Rather, it's about growing in Christ, which not sinning is a part of, but only part of. The gospel is about growing In Jesus, being transformed into his image, being renewed by the Spirit. Confessing sin is only part of the equation. Ultimately, we are called to be a people who confess Jesus. And that's the test. That's the test that John gives here for discernment in chapter 4. This is how we discern truth from deceit. This is how we discern the Spirit of God from the spirits of Antichrist. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So what does it mean? to confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. What does that mean? Well, on the one hand, it is a theological statement, right? It is a theological statement. In the early centuries of the church, there were all kinds of heresies and misunderstandings about the identity of Jesus. Uh, One of them was called docetism, that says that Jesus was God, but was not really human. He only appeared to be human, Right? Uh, there was another a heresy in the early church called Arianism that said Jesus was human, but he wasn't really God. He was created by God, right? And both of these certainly should be rejected, along with any kind of church or teacher who continue to perpetuate these kinds of false teachings. However, I don't think this is primarily what John means. When he says, confessing Jesus has come in the flesh. Confessing that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. I don't think he's primarily trying to give everyone a theology lesson, although that's important. I think it's more likely what John means by this phrase is the whole event of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. This is Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. His life, his death, and his resurrection. In other words, all the events that are written about in the gospel of John, right? That the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That Jesus was crucified. And that early on the first day of the week, Mary found that tomb empty and he was risen right? This is the story. This, this is what it means for Jesus Christ to have come in the flesh. And it's not just believing the story. Remember, discernment is not just a theological exercise. It's knowing and doing the will of God. And so it's not just believing this story about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, but actually following Jesus in his life and death and resurrection. Jesus actually gives a very similar kind of discernment for false prophets. In Matthew chapter 7, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruit. You will know them by their fruit. So I think that what John is saying here is that for a spirit to confess, for someone to confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is to not only believe the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, but to actually follow and live in that story. You know a prophet by their fruit. Are they living the story of Jesus or not? And so this is how we discern. This is how we become a discerning people. Now, my dad worked in a credit union. Uh, He ran a credit union for about 30 years. That was kind of his primary career. And I remember him talking to me one time about how they trained their tellers To to deal with money, right? Because you're constantly receiving and and handing out bills, exchanging things, so on and so forth. And so it's very important, if you're a teller, to be able to spot counterfeit money. And, And there's two ways to train counterfeit, you know, discernment, right? How to tell whether something's counterfeit or not. One of the ways would be to try to show and tell every single teller all the different possibilities of false money, right? Well, it might be a different material, it might be the wrong color, it might have the wrong, you know, words in the corner, whatever it is, right? And, and all these different possible variations, right? That's a lot to hold on to, right? Oh, you know, is it this kind of false currency, that kind of false currency, on and on. That, that's not the best way to discern counterfeit money. Instead of learning all the possible varieties of counterfeit. Another way to train is to just look at the real thing and look at it closely and know what does a real dollar bill feel like or 5 or 10 or 20 or 100 or whatever the case may be, right? What is the real thing actually like? We don't need to know all the possible variations because if we know the real thing, we'll know when it's not. I think this is what it means to be a discerning person. We don't need to know all the possible left turns we could take. We don't need to sort of know all the possible wrong routes. We just need to know Jesus, who he is, the story of his life, his death, and his resurrection. We need to look at that, and we need to look at it closely. We need to live in the truth of this gospel story that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh to live, die, and rise again. And so I want to do that together today, uh, to just consider what is this story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And one of my favorite summaries of this is from Philippians chapter 2. So if, if you want to flip over there, you can. I'll have it on the screen. Um, but this is just an excellent summary of, of what it means for Jesus Christ to have come in the flesh. Uh, and there, there are really three things that I want to highlight, right? The life, death, and his resurrection. And I think some of the things that we can glean from this is, as we consider Jesus' life, the mark of it is humility. Humility is that that call to discern. As we consider Jesus' death, the mark of that is sacrifice. And then as we consider Jesus' resurrection, that is marked by hope. All right? Life, death, resurrection. Humility, sacrifice, and hope. And so Philippians chapter 2 says this beginning with the story of Jesus' life. Though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being born in human likeness. This is a description of the life of Jesus, which was marked by humility. I mean, just note at first that he came at all is this incredible mark of humility, right? He was in the form of God. Jesus has always existed. He has always been, right? Jesus is God, and yet he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped at, exploited, or used. Instead, he emptied himself, and he took the form of a slave. He was born in human likeness, right? Just the fact that Jesus came at all is an incredible image of humility. But, but there's more. It's not just that he came, it's how he came, right? When Jesus was born, uh, his mother gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him where? In a manger, in a feeding trough, because there was no place for them in the end. Right? When he was born, he wasn't born into a palace. He wasn't born into a, a wealthy family. He was born to a couple that couldn't even find a place to stay. And he, he was born among the animals. And then even as Jesus grew up and lived and, and did his ministry, uh, there's this exchange where Jesus uh, talks to someone and says, foxes have holes, Birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, right? Jesus did not gather riches for himself throughout his life. He did not build himself up. Uh, He was a homeless, traveling prophet, right? Another image of Jesus' humility, right? And so that he came at all. Is a mark of humility, but even how he came and how he lived on earth, he lived humbly. And so, as we seek to discern, we should consider this Is what I am hearing humble or is it proud? You know, the, the words that I'm hearing, the person that I'm discerning, the things that I'm discerning, are these humble or are they proud? You know, do these come from a humble lifestyle or a lavish one? And, and there are, I think, a, a few uh, examples of really a false teaching within the church that does not treat the life of Jesus well, you know, there's there's very prominent in our culture prosperity gospel, right? If you follow Jesus, you're going to be rich, you're going to be healthy, everything's going to go fine, right? The sort of prosperity gospel message. And that's just not true, right? It, it denies the life of Jesus who was born into poverty who lived humbly, right? Following Jesus is not the road to riches and fame, but rather to humility. Another kind of teaching is a sort of hyper-charismatic teaching that says, hey, um, if, you know, you're just going to be healed, God's going to heal everyone and everything, and if you're not healed, well, then that's on you, right? It's because of some sin in your life, some kind of problem that you have, on and on it goes. That's just not true, Right? Once more, it denies the life of Jesus, right? That says, oh, living is going to be easy, we're going to be healthy and wealthy, everything's going to be comfortable and fine. It's just not true. Jesus lived a meek life. He knew what it was to be hungry. He probably knew what it was to be sick. Right? This is part of living. And and to preach a sort of prosperity gospel or, um, you know, signs and wonders and and healings kind of gospel is to deny the reality of Jesus' life, that he came in the flesh and lived a truly human life. If you're following Jesus to get rich or you're following Jesus to be made well, there's one word for that, idolatry. You're not really following Jesus. You're following wealth. Or health. And so to be humble is one of the calls of discernment. As we listen, is this humble? Is this meek? Or is this just leading to some kind of comfort and lavishness? I think that's one way of discerning as we consider the life of Jesus. But it goes on, right? Uh, Philippians 2 continues to describe Jesus' death being found in human form he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even death on a cross and so this is not just about the humility and living but jesus also went so far as to sacrifice his own life he didn't only suffer he also died Right as, as we read last week in 1 John chapter 3, he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for one another. And so sacrifice is another way of discerning what it is that we're hearing. As we seek to discern, we should consider, does this message flow from self-sacrifice or self-preservation? Does it flow from self-sacrifice or self-preservation? Is this message lead to the giving up of power? Or is this message an attempt to hold on and gather up more power? And I think that this has is, is been a, a huge problem uh, for, for many in our culture, in our country, if you had no exposure to Christianity at all, and all you knew was kind of what you heard and saw, it would be very easy to think that Christianity is essentially a political party trying to gain power in this country. That's not Christianity, remotely. And yet, so many Christians are far more concerned about me and my rights than giving up our rights, right? The early Christians were fed to lions, and yet Christians today can hardly stand to wear masks. There are many, right? Uh, this, this is a fundamental problem, with the posture that we have. It's not the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is the seeking after power. It's not self-sacrifice, it's self-preservation. There's, you know, all kinds of other examples of this throughout church history, but even as as early as a few years ago, there's a a very popular podcast on right now about a a large church that was in this area that kind of dissolved and fell apart overnight. And one of the constant refrains throughout this very kind of unhealthy and and toxic church culture that had developed in this church, uh, one of the people who had been a part of it has come back to reflect on his experience and always ask the question, who does this serve? Who does this serve whenever anything is called to? Because there were constantly moments in this person who was being interviewed on this podcast and their experience where they were asked to sacrifice things. They're asked to sacrifice their time, their money, their health even. And yet, you know, and, and many times it felt like, well, hey, that's That's the gospel, right? We're called to sacrifice. And yet, so often, it was not really serving the church. It was serving this particular pastor at the church who through that person's sacrifice was gaining fame and notice and power, right? And they were not really serving Jesus, but they were being manipulated by power structures to serve a person. This is not the gospel, right? This abusive way of leading, these various ways of of manipulating people, our culture is fascinated with power. Gather it up, right? That's what we want. This is not the way of the gospel. And so, as we seek to discern, does this message flow from self-sacrifice or self-preservation? Is it shaped by a letting go? Or is it trying to hang on? Philippians continues, because the gospel is not just about Jesus' life and death. It doesn't end at the cross, but it moves toward the resurrection. And so as we continue reading, Therefore God also highly exalted him, gave him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess—there's that word, right? Confessing Jesus, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so this story, the reality of Jesus' resurrection, points to hope. It's marked by hope. So that discernment question, as we seek to discern, we should consider, does what we are hearing, does it lead to hope or does it lead to apathy and despair? Does it lead to hope or does it lead to apathy and despair? This brings us right back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, is, is what we're hearing leading us to be constantly suspicious of everything going around us? Paranoid, you know, oh man, the, the earth is just falling apart. Everything is utter destruction. You know, watch out. Everything is, is awful. Or does it lead to this, this piece of hope where, hey, things are being made new? There's good news in this, there's life to be found right? As we seek to discern, does this lead to hope, or does it lead to apathy and despair? And so these are some of the marks of discernment. Does this spirit confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? Does does it confess and, and follow and embody the life death and resurrection of Jesus, humility, sacrifice, and hope? Or does it not? Does it it embody and point to something else? Pride, self-preservation, apathy, and despair? These are ways for us to discern, is it about Jesus or not? And ultimately, you know, this can kind of feel overwhelming, right? I mean, we, as we begin, you know, the discernment is not just about what's out there. It's about what's in here. We can begin to think, do I even embody the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? I've got a good bit of pride. I've got a good bit of self-preservation. I have a good bit of apathy, right? Whatever the case may be. But if you turn back to 1 John Our passage doesn't end there. In verse 4, he goes on to say, Little children, you are from God, and you have conquered them, all of these false teachings, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. This means that we don't follow and, and enter the life of Jesus by our own willpower, by our own merit, by our own work and mustering it up. We follow the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus by grace, through faith. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. The Holy Spirit dwells in us and is guiding us. And so we're to be a people who discern, a people who reflect on the state of our own hearts. Spirit, shape me and make me to be like Jesus. Help me to live humbly, not building bigger barns, right? Help me to live sacrificially, not constantly being about me, myself, and I. Help me to live with hope, even when it makes no sense, even in the face of death. It's what the gospel is all about, right? He is greater than those who are in the world. It's about how Jesus, despite having lived a humble, sacrificial life, overcame sin and death. He has conquered sin and death. That's why there is this hope and resurrection. And so my prayer for us is this. that Just like those who are trying to understand counterfeit money, that we would look at the real thing. That we would look at Jesus. And if we would just continue to pursue Jesus, and confess Jesus as Lord, we will overcome. We will conquer, not by our might, but by his grace through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. For the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Amen.